The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for his kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit shadygrovepca.org. All right, if you have your Bible and want to follow along in 1 Timothy 2, we're going to try to tackle one of the toughest passages in the Bible. And we took a, we're taking a little break from 1 Peter. We'll get back to it. But you know, we did a month of um, talking about the need for officers, for elders and deacons. And I never really addressed the question of uh, why is it that women can't be elders or deacons in the church? And that seems to be uh, it's a big issue right now uh, in the church, not just our church, but obviously in the larger church. And if you, if you just Google uh, complementarianism or complementarianism under attack, I mean, it, you will have more reading than you could possibly imagine and lots of podcasts. And, um, and so I'm a bit nervous as I give this message and you get nervous for two reasons, they tell you in public speaking. One is you're not prepared and two is you're worried about what people think. And it's both. I mean, how could you possibly be prepared? I've only listened to hours and hours of podcasts and read hundreds and hundreds of pages. And I have three documents that I've written. And the latest one here is about 15 to, I think it's 17 pages. I can only give you eight. So we're trying to like distill this down and it's pretty impossible. And then you're fearing, of course, what people think because this is going to affect people on both sides of this issue. And as we think through this, I want you to think through four categories, okay? So we're thinking about where do women fit in the life of the church, and you basically have four views. You have feminism, you have egalitarianism, you have complementarianism, and then you have traditional patriarchy. And what I want to try to do in the message is show you that the two, the ones and the fours here, they have to be pushed out because neither of those is biblical. And then we have to wrestle with where to, and ultimately where I'm landing is complementarianism. But I want to kind of show you some of the extremes. And I think what people are hearing is um, maybe, maybe we're not hearing each other all that well, but I do think there's a lot of things that have been said that have been hurtful, and that doesn't help the discussion either. So let's give attention to God's Word and we'll, we'll jump into this. This is 1 Timothy 2, verses 8 to 15. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and golds, or pearls, or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they will continue in faith in love, in holiness, with self-control. I think maybe I should pray for us again. (laughs) Let's pray. Father, do help us to understand your word. 
to not bring an um, agenda to the text, to be honest of our own hurts and disappointments. But we pray that, Lord, we would go back to the creation account and that we would wrestle through these texts as best we can. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would lead in the life of our church and we ask that you would um, help us to persevere in love for one another. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So I guess I first want to kind of couch this in the terms of like, um, you hear these expressions these days about Christian triage and the idea is that, and, and I'm not a doctor, but if you're doing triage, you're trying to uh, determine what level of need is you're assessing damage. And there's a big difference between uh, a loss of a pulse compared to the loss of smell and taste or the loss of a fingernail. You're going to grade those differently. And obviously, the loss of a pulse is a first-rate problem. You've got to address that first. And in spiritual triage, we would say first issues are issues of salvation, the issues that are of central importance to the word of, uh, to, for one to be saved. And, and so if those issues come under attack, that's a loss of a pulse. And nobody is saying that this, or, well, I shouldn't say nobody. There are some people that are saying that this is a first-rate issue, but most of us, as we're working through the issue of where do we realize, what are the issues like church government? And how do we land in church government? Issues of like mode of baptism, whether who's going to be baptized and children and, and do they profess faith first and how should they be baptized? Those will be second level issues. Those will be, you know, lost of taste or smell. And then you've got issues like lost of a fingernail that's very annoying, very frustrating, maybe acutely painful. But those are more issues like your views of whether you're going to homeschool, public school, or Christian school, or issues of politics and how you line up politically, or your views of smoking and drinking, or lots of other these peripheral issues, those would be fingernail kind of issues. And they can be frustrating, but I think what we're trying to say is in the categories here, this would be a second level issue. It's not an issue of salvation, but it is an issue that determines how the church is going to decide on its government. And as I said, there's, there's these four different views. You've got feminists, egalitarians, complementarians, and patriarchal traditionalists. Now, feminism, I would, I would define, and by the way, I'm, I'm borrowing a bunch from lots of different people, but those categories are from uh, Matt Chandler at uh, the Village Church and some of their documents that they've worked through and then a podcast as well. But those... The feminism would typically be defined as people that they're not really siding with the Bible. They're not going to the Bible for their answers, okay? And often feminists, it, basically there's a, a mistrust and a suspicion of men. And so they perceive anything that looks like uh, men are in a position of power over them as they would see anything like that as oppressive, evil, and should be snuffed out. And men, don't, men are basically the problem. And so when you kind of start hearing, you know, men are the problem, and if we can just get rid of men, that, that's more aligning with feminism, okay? And so feminism kind of has this view that men are to be questioned, they're not to be trusted, they use their power to oppress and to destroy. On the other end of this spectrum, you have traditional patriarchy, which does just, just does the opposite. 
which says women can't be trusted. Women just need to take, stay at home and take care of the babies. And so patriarchal traditionalism uh, is more of people taking, a lot of times they're, they're actually still using the scriptures, but they're using the scriptures as a weapon. And so anytime you, you move towards any type of misogyny, any type of oppression, uh, any type of abuse, any type of male domination, um, I would say that's not complementarianism. There's nothing complementary about that. That's traditional patriarchy and extremes of sin and needs to be repented of. And we've seen lots of examples where people have been hurt. And so you, if you've listened to any of the Mars Hill um, Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast and familiar with Mark Driscoll and his book, uh, Real Marriage, and some of what he's saying, you will see what male fleshly headship looks like. Then you've got the Jesus and John Wayne book, which a lot of people have read, and you have the Rescuing Sex book, and then you have, um, instead of recovering biblical manhood and, and, and womanhood, you've got Amy Bird writing, Recovering from Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. And they're responding to what I would say is abuses that they have seen of people maybe claiming complementarianism, but that is not complementarianism. And then you have Beth Allison Barr's book, The Making of Biblical Womanhood, How the Subjugation of Women Became Gospel Truth. Well, then you have some really bad stuff that's been said along the way. And some of my great heroes have said some really bad things. Okay, I won't read you the full quote of Martin Luther of what he said, and you can look this and Google it, but he basically said, women should remain at home, sit still, keep house, and bear and bring up children. Martin Luther. He said a lot of things that, that got him in trouble, and even though he did father of the Reformation, great things, that's not complementarianism. I just want you to know that. That's not what we teach as a church. We don't believe what Phil Lancaster teaches from Vision Forum Ministries when he says the God-ordained and proper sphere of dominion for a wife is the household and that which is connected with the home. While unmarried women may have more flexibility, it is not the ordinary and fitting role of women to work alongside men as their equal functions in public spheres of dominion. That's not what we believe as a church. That's not... So patriarchy, this patriarchal traditionalism, basically has this view that, that women shouldn't be leading in anything in society and in church, um, and basically they're better seen uh, than heard is really kind of the upshot of that. And then there's been some hurtful things that have been said, like John MacArthur, great leader, you know, he's at this conference, Truth Matters conference, and they're asked to give a one-word gut reaction to current-day subjects, and they mentioned Beth Moore. And his response was, go home. Leaders are to protect women. And that is not protecting women. And it might have got a nice laugh and was nice red meat for men at this conference. But women were hurt by that. And certainly Beth Moore was offended by that. That's not complementarianism. And then his sidekick says, when I think of Beth Moore, Phil Johnson says, I think narcissist. We could go on and on. I mean, there's lots of reasons why people are struggling with this issue because complementarianism has moved over into this rut of traditional patriarchy that's bad. 
And we just have to recognize that anything that's wolf rather than sheep, anything that's a monster preying upon weaker vessels, crimes of sexual assault, abuses of power, misconduct, that's not complementarianism. Okay? Peter and Paul never, they never tell all women to submit to all men. That's not what we're teaching. Submission does not make a wife a property of her husband. Male headship is not an excuse for abuse, manipulation, or oppression. Your wife is not your maid. Complementarianism has been used and sometimes to control and force norms, restrict norms, and that is sad. Don Carson, or D.A. Carson, in his article, What's Wrong with Patriarchy, he says, the Bible does not present men and women as if they're interchangeable in every aspect, save for the fact that the woman has a uterus and can therefore produce babies. Rather, both men and women were made in the image of God and are of equal worth before him, but in God's good design, they fit together in mutually complementary ways. And that's not compliments where you say something nice, it's complementary, complementary ways that go way beyond mere sexual mechanics. The substance of this complementarianism has to be filled out by careful and reverent study of Scripture. And I like this. Study that's suspicious of agenda-driven traditionalism and agenda-driven egalitarianism. We often recognize that there's a tendency to want to come to the text with an agenda. Now, egalitarianism, so now you just, I'm just trying to blow out the, the two, the feminist view, and I'm more attacking patriarchal uh, traditionalism because that's more in the church. Um, whereas... True feminists, they don't even believe the word of God. Whereas egalitarians and comp- uh, complementarians, they will believe the word, but I would say that the essence of difference is that egalitarians believe that headship comes after the fall. And that this idea that one is to uh, you know, be the head of the home, they would say that comes after the fall, and now in Christ, we're all one in Christ, and all the distinctions have been taken away because of Galatians 328, and you'll hear that, that verse a lot. Um, and so um, that would be kind of the egalitarian view, is that they're, they're really, every, everything a woman or a man can do every, is everything a woman can do. And that's kind of, and then Galatians 328 is the, really a big proof text, which says there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And that kind of, you know, is used to kind of carry the framework of egalitarianism. Well, but Paul is actually arguing in Galatians 3.28. By the way, I will get to the text, okay? We just kind of have to go a long way to get there, okay? Galatians 3.28, Paul is saying that the Abrahamic covenant is fulfilled by Jesus, who's the offspring, through whom the blessings flow to the nations. And there are no limitations to this Abrahamic covenant if you are in Christ. It doesn't matter if you are a Jew or a Greek or a slave or free or male or female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3 doesn't mean that a Jew is no longer a Jew or a Gentile is no longer a Gentile, or a slave is no longer a slave, or a male is no longer a male, or a female is no longer a female. The distinctions are still in place, but none of those distinctions exclude you from union with Christ. And those distinctions are no reasons for pride before God. We are all one in Christ Jesus. 
So Galatians 3 is not addressing specific roles that men and women are given in their specific callings. Men are still to sacrificially lead and love their wives as Christ does the church. We see that that's still in place in redemption, that it's not removed. And, and wives are still called to respect and lovingly submit to their husbands as the church submits to Christ in Ephesians 5. And that lastly, the elders still have a responsibility to teach, to give oversight as overseers in the church. And we see in Scripture that, that role has only been given to ordained male elders. So we would say Galatians 3 isn't incongruent or incompatible with Ephesians 5, 1 Timothy 2 and 3, Titus 1, 1 Peter 5, or Hebrews 13, 17. And so what complementarianism is trying to say is that both men and women, though created equal in value and dignity as image bearers of God, that God has sovereignly designed specific roles and responsibilities for men and women that are distinct, unique, and both for the glory of God. So when you get to Genesis 3.16, if you have your bulletin, you might want to just look back at that passage of Galatians, or I'm sorry, Genesis 3.16, because that's a, that's a very difficult verse, and there's, there's various views or explanations of the verse. And what you have in Genesis 3.16, okay, is... This is the, the curse. These, this is in the context of curses that God has given. And he says to the woman, I will surely multiply your, your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, I will just tell you how this gets interpreted. The traditional patriarchy view will basically say, see, the woman, her desires for her husband, she just wants to rule. And he doesn't see this, the other half, <laughs> the next part. He shall rule over you. And that's the verse that the feminist or the egalitarian says, I don't like that part. And the reality is, is what's happened here is they're, they're both true. It's in the context of a curse. They were made to be rulers over all creation. And they can only do it together. They're both given the charge to take dominion over the whole earth. And they're to do it together. And now instead of ruling over the creation, they're now at odds and wanting to rule over each other. And there's a built-in tension that comes with marriage. As Victor Hamilton in his commentary on Genesis says, far from being a reign of co-equals over the remainder of God's creation, the relationship now becomes a fierce dispute, each party trying to rule the other. The two who once reigned as one attempt to rule each other. And so there is a tension where women have tried to take over the man's role or the husband's role, the wife trying to take over that. But then the men and the husband oppressing and dominating and manipulating and controlling and abusing his wife. And so you have this passive-aggressive kind of thing going on here. And so there is this, and we get that when it comes to work, right? We say, man, work is, work is good, but now there's going to be no job that's going to be easy, right? It's, it's, it's now has the, the fall built into it. Same with marriage, 
Marriage is a good gift, and now it has this tension that's built into it. And we need Jesus to redeem. Well, then you, as you think through complementarianism, and there, there's two categories of this, okay? And I want to be, try to be clear, and I'm getting these categories from Jonathan Lehman from the Nine Marks Ministries, and there's others that use different categories, but I, this kind of works. But the idea is that you have two different views of complementarianism. You have a narrow view and you have a broad view. This is important. So the, the narrow view of complementarianism is this idea that women have different roles that different from men, but it's in a narrowly focused area of the home, where you have husband and wife, and each given a different role, and then you have it narrowly focused in the office of elder within the church. That's called narrow, the narrow view, okay? So women should be allowed to exercise her teaching gifts alongside men in the local church, so long as she's not ordained to the teaching and shepherding office of elder, okay? That's basically where our elder board has landed. The broad view of complementarianism is the idea that women not only have distinct roles, um, but these boundaries are not just for home or in the church, but also in society. And so they would take these, these boundaries much further than a narrow view. And, they, and so the narrow view basically says a woman shouldn't be doing any teaching in any context over where a man is present. And furthermore, you know, you would even go so far as, unfortunately, some of my heroes like John Piper and Wayne Grudem, as they kind of coined all this stuff back in the 80s, like John Piper doesn't believe a woman should be a police officer or a politician because that's broad complementarianism. You're applying it to all of life and that any place where a woman has authority, she shouldn't. That's not what we believe. That's not where we've landed as a church. And so I would disagree vehemently with Piper and Grudem on that view. So as you kind of wonder where this works itself out, Jonathan Lehman puts it like this. He says, a broad complementarian is probably less likely to make room for a woman teaching a mixed-gender Sunday school class, while a narrow complementarianism will likely make room. In the home, a broad complementarianism couple will probably work harder at living on one income so that the woman can remain at home while the children are young, whereas the narrow complementarian couple will probably work harder at pursuing vocational opportunities for the mother outside the home. And we never talked about these categories as an elder board when we worked through where we've landed on this, but we certainly came out on the narrow side, that, it only, that these verses would only apply now, the, the idea that every woman should submit to every man is not something we see in Scripture. And so, um, so let's just continue to march through this. So I think it's important to see um, that what you see in this first um, Timothy context here is there's some things that are cultural and some things that we would say are not cultural, right? He says, I desire that men should pray lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. I didn't see many men lifting holy hands this morning, did you? So what part is cultural and what part is not? The men are to pray lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. We would say the principle that remains is that the culture will be, okay, that your hands have to be lifted 
But the idea is that you can't be praying and have anger or bitterness in your hearts to somebody. That would be the principle that remains. And for the woman, there's women here this morning that have braided hair. Some might even have a little bit of gold on, may have some attire that maybe costs a little bit of money. And we don't have a problem with that in verse 9. So what's the principle that remains? The principle of what's more important is the heart. God looking at the heart and not on the outward appearance. But then it gets real tricky because then it's saying, okay, this is what Paul's instructions that he gives for the woman in relation. And we would say the context here is worship. So you see, you see that men are praying um, and prayers are be made for all people in verse 1. And then it goes through to chapter 3. So it tells you about the office of elder and deacon. But then in 3 verse 14 and 15, we're told this is how we're to behave in the household of God. And so it seems as though the context is worship. And in public worship, this is the instruction that Paul has given. And so what's interesting here is we would say the reason that this, if it's cultural, then what's the principle that remains? If you're going to say, okay, men can lift their hand or worship without lifting hands and women can wear jewelry. What is the principle that remains for if this is cultural for women? Well, the difficulty here is that Paul says that one, this is in every place. Um, but then as he goes on here, um, he lays out that this is rooted in creation and in the fall. Adam was formed first, then Eve, And so he goes to creation and then to the fall. And so Paul is not giving anything that's not grounded in a historical argument that goes all the way back to creation. And as as Tom Schreiner is a great commentator, um, he just points to six indications where he says Adam had the special status of head before the fall. And we've read the account this morning, so see if if you would agree. One, God created Adam first, then Eve. Two, God gave Adam the command to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Three, God created Eve to be a helper for Adam. Four, Adam exercised his leadership by naming the creature God formed out of Adam's rib woman. Five, the the serpent subverted God's pattern of leadership by tempting Eve rather than Adam. And six, God approached Adam first after the couple had sinned, even though Eve sinned first. And so Schreiner's conclusion, he says, he's not suggesting that every one of these arguments has equal weight or clarity, but that taken as a whole, they are indications of male headship before the fall. And so we see headship and helpership is already woven into the fabric of creation. And so we would say that what Paul is arguing is that pattern now exists in the church, and this pattern for leadership in marriage is the basis of why Paul is arguing for all male eldership, is that the gender norms for eldership derive from gender norms for marriage. If this were not the case, the church's leadership structure would be at odds with the leadership structure God established for marriages within the church. That's why God has designed an expression of this headship principle for both the home and the church. Okay, so as you kind of wrestle through this this text here, I think... um, Well, a couple things. Um, First of all, when he's saying that the woman is to learn quietly, um, and and unfortunately the NIV translates it, the woman should learn in silence. And 
the, the issue is this. The Great Commission is for men and women. And we're to make learners. We're to go and make learners. That's the same word here. And what was happening that Paul's responding to is in the Jewish culture, women were not allowed to be learners. They were treated as inferior. And there are some awful uh, statements that were in the Talmud and expressions of the, that the women is basically, don't teach them. And they weren't even taught. And Paul is saying, no, let the woman learn. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissive. And the picture is really of, when you think of Mary in Luke 10, and she's sitting at Jesus' feet, and most likely there were probably other men around, and Martha's upset about it because she's saying, what is she doing? She's over here learning. She should be helping me. She should get back in the kitchen. And Jesus, remember, rebukes Martha and says she's doing the one thing needful. She's sitting at my feet and she's learning. And the idea of silence, it's interesting, the word that's used here, let, alert, let the woman learn quietly. It's not silence. It's the same word used back in verse 2 for the, to how we're to pray for, pray for kings and all who are high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. So it doesn't mean no, no speaking. Certainly that's, you know. And when Paul is arrested in Acts 21, we're told that the, the crowd is hushed, and then he starts to speak to them in the Hebrew language. And when he started speaking to them in Hebrew, they became even more quiet. You got two words in Greek. They're initially hushed, and then they became more quiet when he started to speak. It's the second word that's used here. This isn't a hush word. There's no shut up. That's not what this means. It means taking him with reverence. As they started to hear him speaking in Hebrew, they became all the more quiet so that they could learn. That, that's the idea here. And so, um, so Paul roots his argument in creation and then in the fall, and that the women are to learn. They are, to be, they are part of the Great Commission. And so I think for us the concern would be, as you kind of play this out in, in our church, I mean, I think some of the concerns would be I think as I see the enemy kind of attacking different churches, you will see some churches that are female-dominated. And that's not our church. Or females, you know, they're, they're, they kind of run, the, run the, the church and the men are not very involved. But the flip side is, is churches that tend to only have the male leaders become not just a male-led church, but a male-dominated or a male-heavy church. And I think that's something we need to, to work on as a church. Why is it that we have so many more counters that are men? Why is it so many ushers are more men than women? And on the finance committee or the mission committee or the adult Christian edu education committee, they're mainly men. And I don't think it should be. And I wonder if it's women feel like, well, we don't really, we feel kind of like JV. We'll let the guys be the varsity, but we're just the middle school team. And so we'll do our stuff over here. And if that's the case, I hope it's not, but there, there, there's some perception here that has to change. We need to see each other as siblings, not subordinates. And so the married men have been given this command that we're to, we're to, to pursue the, the creation together and take dominion together. It's creating environments where our wife and and. and for those that are single, is we're in the family of God. The women's gifts 
and their abilities are to be unleashed. And so we have to be careful, so careful in Scripture to find this, this line of, okay, the last thing you want to do is affirm what is forbidden. But what about the other way around? What if you're forbidding something that's affirmed? And so the, this interest, where we've just shaken out with this issue of women in regards to teaching is we've put a position statement out to the church of where the, the elders have landed. And I'll just need to read that if I can find it here. Let's see if I can. I got so many pages of notes, but that's kind of a, a key one that was sent out to the church. We might eventually get there. My goodness. Well, this is not good. I can't find it. Well, this is where we landed, is that the teaching, we would say this, that the teaching and authority, you can't separate those terms in the original language. So when you get to verse 12 and you say, I don't permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority, and they can say, the teaching is always positively used in Scripture. So you can't turn around and say authority is, is used negatively because the word that connects them, this Greek word, you can't separate them. So teaching and authority, they go together. And so the question would be, where is the teaching with authority? And for where we landed as a church is, well, where are their membership vows? Where's the Lord's Supper? And where's the preached word of God? And you want to bring it up to me, Dave? I'll read it. That would be helpful since I've lost it in my 18 pages of notes here. Um, It'd be helpful to just read where we land on that. Sorry. Thank you. Man, that's a good brother right there. Here we are. Here's where we landed. That all members in the body of Christ, regardless of gender and gifts, are equal image bearers and indispensable in the eyes of God. The Bible encourages and commands all God's children to bless, serve, teach, and spur on one another. And the session of Shady Grove Presbyterian Church affirms that all positions of leadership and service are open to women except for the ordained offices of elder and deacon. Women are encouraged to seek out all non-ordained avenues of leadership and service, including Bible teaching, um, outside of a worship service, leading small groups, serving and leading on the various church committees, assisting the deacons in diaconal work, and fully exercising their gifts for the greater benefit of the body of Jesus Christ. In the Presbyterian form of government, the authoritative teaching and disciplinary role that the Bible reserves for men in 1 Timothy 2, 12-14 is embodied solely in this session composed of ruling and teaching elders. So where we landed was the narrow complementarianism view. And the idea is that there is, just so you understand where we're landing biblically, is that what we see in Scripture is that when the Spirit of God is poured out at Pentecost, is that women begin to prophesy just as much as the men began to prophesy. And so we also see that women prayed and prophesied in church in Corinth. And they were allowed to do that. That's why the whole issue of head coverings came up. So when you get to 1 Corinthians 14 and they're told to be quiet, or be, it's when the people are, are weighing the prophecy to determine if it's from God or not. And that is something that only the elders should be doing is the actual authority of weighing out what is actually uh, being said. And in that context, the women were to be um, quiet. But we see in Scripture is that women did prophesy. 
They did, and we also see them teaching. So we see Priscilla and Aquila, and Priscilla is often named first, and many think it's because she was more gifted than Aquila, but she, they're, Priscilla and Aquila taught Apollos in a small group setting in Acts 21, 8 and 9. And then we have this, this command that's right in the uh, reflection verses, which is, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And so that command is not given to men. That's given to everybody. So where are we providing the context for men and women to teach and admonish one another in all wisdom? And where we land as a church is anywhere outside the worship service is where that can happen. And so we need to make room for that as a church, for that to happen. And so that's how we landed in thinking through the first Timothy 2, is that the context is worship, and that with the preached word, there's something authoritative with that that comes, is accompanied with the sacraments. It's where membership vows are made as well, and where people join the church. That doesn't happen in a small group or in Sunday school. And so we're upsizing the preaching and we're downsizing the, um, the small groups and the Sunday school teaching is to say that, that that's authoritative teaching. We're, we're, not, we're saying that, that it's not. So that's where we've landed. I would just say we're, we're starting the conversation on this and, we'll be, and we've invited women leaders to join the elders next month and we'll be talking a lot more about this. And I would just say, if you have questions on this, like, feel free to email because I would think that there's probably going to need to be some other context where we can answer questions, whether it's a lunch or some type of forum where we can uh, answer questions. Um, and so I think we'll need to land the plane there and, and then we'll get ready to come to the table uh, here in a minute. So let's pray together. Father, I ask that, you're, that you would work in each of our hearts, Lord, removing out any hurt or bitterness. We pray that, Lord, we would grow up together as the body and where the the elders haven't listened well, that you would have mercy upon us. We pray that, Lord, we would truly uh, listen and love and lead. And we pray that, Lord, um, you would protect us from Satan's schemes. And we pray now as we come to your table that we would remember that our bridegroom has loved us so much and has shown us what what sacrificial love is by shedding his life's blood to bring us into fellowship with you forever. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.